Welcome to Stage Blather, a weekly podcast exploring theatre and performance based in Scotland. My name is Sam Haddo, and you're listening to episode 10, Wonder. Pencil on paper and ink in your throat Why should the world give a damn what you wrote? You're one more broke poet who will never go far With a tuneless piano and a painted Guitar. It's a good word, I think, wonder. It's one of those words that uh, we use a lot, but we find quite difficult to um, define, and I like those words. Uh, we've had a bleak few weeks, a uh, bleak few episodes as well, and I'm not... I'm, I'm going to try and do a less bleak episode now. I'm not suggesting for a second that any of us should get over the recent catastrophes that have unfolded around us, um, or accept their consequences, but... Uh, and in fact, I'm not suggesting you do anything at all, of course. What... But I have to stop moping around, and unless I try to figure out what is good uh, in the world as well as, you know, what is bad, then I'm basically no earthly use to anybody. So I'm going to try and do a more upbeat show and talk about wonder. Um, and in fact, the episode, the, the idea for this episode came quite a while ago, um, in December 2015, when I went to see a show called White. Um, now, White is uh, produced by the Scottish theatre company Catherine Wheel, and they've been touring this show since 2010. Uh, and according to their website, which I think is on, uh, which I'll put a link to on Facebook, they've performed it 1,160 times so far. They're still on tour. They'll be performing the show in Musselburgh, Inverness, and Dundee in Scotland, London in England, and Montbéliard in Montbéliard, sorry, in France, from October to December this year. So, if you want to see it, then it is on tour. It is an unusual production because it is specifically designed for audiences between two and four years of age. Um, so it's one of those ones that you can only really go and see if you've got a baby. The conceit for the show is quite simple. Two men, Cotton and Wrinkle, um, have a kind of father-son relationship. They live in a world that is entirely, unremittingly white. They eat and drink white food, they wear white lederhosen, they wear uh, the, you know, white knitted hats, they catch white eggs that fall from the sky, which they put into these wonderful eccentric little egg houses that are all over the stage. Um, they don't say much beyond the word white. Um, any colour that appears in their world is immediately thrown away. And one day a red egg appears, and despite Cotton's command to, to bin it, Wrinkle secretly keeps the egg and gives it a home in one of these um, little egg houses. And the egg houses are all over the stage, and they're in these kind of spindly um, stalks. Uh, overnight, the red egg influences a multitude of hidden spaces on the stage, and when they wake up the next morning, they suddenly discover that there's colour everywhere, but it's kind of hidden in different places. And then they have this, this kind of wonderful physical theatre comedy type thing where they each try to hide the fact that colour keeps appearing from each other. Eventually, they uh, can't hide the fact that colour has appeared, and um, they both discover, to their surprise, that each one loves colour, but couldn't find a way of telling the other one that they loved colour, and so they, they embrace colour. And then at the end of the show, there's this big confetti cannon, just sprinkles confetti everywhere, which my uh, one-year-old at the time, son, adored, and of course set about trying to eat as much confetti as he could find. Now, um, from that little description, I could obviously go on about difference and the importance of generating enthusiasm for difference in children, which I think is, is one of the, the key points of the, the show. And of course, you know, in, given events of recent weeks, this is a very important discussion. But to be honest, that seems quite straightforward. And what I want to talk about is a little bit more difficult because I want to talk about the sense of wonder that powers the show and that, that has made it such a success because if it was just a show about difference and colour then it wouldn't, I don't think it'd be sufficient to, to drive it through over a thousand productions. There has to be something else to it, which is making it so repeatedly popular with audiences. 
and actually, you know, theatre for uh, for babies is 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 not a very well respected or supported genre, and finding funding and finding you know, advertising for this kind of theatre is very difficult. Um, and also, I, I should uh, I think it should be pointed out that theatre for babies, theatre for children generally, is often seen as a kind of softer option, not quite as important as uh, as adult theatre. But actually, children and babies are some of the toughest audiences ever. Um, I once saw, uh, I took a group of, or went with a group of students who were performing a piece of theatre for under five-year-olds. They took it to a nursery in Cornwall, and there was a kid in the front row. Um, after about mm, two or three minutes, this kid turned 180 degrees round and faced the back wall and refused to face the stage for the rest of the show. Just like sat there with her arms folded, like definition of a tough crowd. But if you can capture that audience, um, as the player Edward Bond says, they will show you more attention and they will absorb more of your production than almost any adult audience you could ever care to mention. If you can get them, then kids are a brilliant audience. If you can't get them, then they are an absolute nightmare. And what I think that I saw in this production of White, and what I saw reflected in the way that my son responded to this production, and the other babies around him, was a particular quality of wonder. Now, I want to talk about this, this, this topic, and I want to try and define it for several reasons. One is because there is something about wonder in a live performance that you can't find anywhere else. Film, books, photography, fine art, they all have their own different qualities of wonder, but there is something that live performance can do that no other method of artistic production is able to touch. It's why, despite the, the rain and the extortionate costs and so on, that about 150,000 people or more every year go to Glastonbury. There's something irreplaceable about the sensation of being there. Another reason is, is one that my mother is uh, fond of using to defend the importance of imagination and fantasy uh, in primary years education. It shouldn't need defending, but in the current climate it does. Um, and I'm paraphrasing, but she says something like, children have too much reality in their lives and they need something more to remind them that they're children. Um, my own opinion is that, that that doesn't stop when you reach adulthood, and in fact, it, it, the need probably increases, that we have too much reality in our everyday lives and that we need something more to remind us of our own you know, humanity, personhood. And I refer you back to the episode on storytelling, where I, I witted on about how sad it was that we only tell stories to children, that actually adults need stories just as much, if not more so, than children do. Because an encounter with the fantastical, or with the imaginative, is something that stretches your understanding of the possibilities of life. It uh, encourages new ways of thinking, uh, new ways of understanding, and, and new ways of creating, and so on. I will repeat this later in the show, and I, I should say this now, but what I'm describing here is not, is in fact, it's the complete opposite of what I described last week in terms of our new post-factual society. I talked about, you know, fantasy and imagination. Um, well, certainly fantasy. Um, but the, the notion of the post-factual society, that's a kind of fantastical that describes people who have closed themselves off from the world, rather than test the limits of the world. People who prioritise falsehoods without bothering to interrogate them. These are not people who are full of wonder. These are people who have been emptied of wonder. So there's a very, very important distinction to be made in what I'm describing here in terms of imagination and fantasy and wonder versus what I described last week in terms of post-factual. Right, now let's deal with a couple of misnomers before we... Um, get into the definition of, of wonder. The first thing, I don't mean to wonder how, as in, you know, I wonder how they did that, or I wonder how that happened. That's the kind of, that's the action of a logical brain that's posed with a problem. Um, somebody that's posed with a, maybe a fantastical problem, but a problem that isn't finite, and therefore doomed to succeed, you know? 
if it's like you if you watch a magician i wonder how they did that and if you really seek out if that is the only thing that you're wondering about if, if the only thing that you're looking at is technique and you find out then anybody that's done that knows that immediately that trick that the magician performed is emptied of wonder it no longer contains any sense of wonder for you and so if all you're looking for is to try and figure out how something was done then you are doomed to success and success will end up destroying the notion of wonder um, and I'll go further with that. I'll say that if the only sense of wonder that you have is in the solving of a solvable problem, then your wonder is a drug that defeats itself and it must be perpetually replaced. I think, actually, uh, this is kind of the wonder of Sherlock Holmes. And it's, it's, I don't think it's any accident that Arthur Conan Doyle uh, has his hero, before Hollywood takes over, um, being a heroin addict. Because I think there's something about the notion of, of, of trying to figure something out and only focusing upon the end result that seems quite similar to the notion of a drug to me. So I don't mean that kind of wonder. I also don't mean the kind of wonder that is, you know, in wonder of, which is a feeling that I associate with watching people who, who do things that, that, you know, maybe I can't do or, or maybe I even not thought possible before seeing them. People like acrobats, jugglers, contortionists, Olympic athletes, hypnotists, all this kind of thing. Um, these are people who... Uh, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with their art form. I think their art form is spectacular. But if all you're doing is looking at them and saying, oh, I didn't know you could do that, or, wow, that's um, something more than I, I um, believe possible, then again, that's not really the sort of wonder that I'm talking about here, because that kind of wonder is not engaging you. It's not, you're not actively considering this. You're just passively saying, well, okay, that's quite remarkable. Um, so that's not the kind of wonder I want to talk about. Um, because if you watch an art form, and all it summons up inside you is a marvel at the achievement of the impossible, that's, to me, that's just like a transient respect. It's like you're, you're engaging in a ranking system. And if that's the only quality by which you determine wonder, then when you see somebody doing something even more amazing, then you'll forget the first act that you saw, and you'll replace it with this new thing. And again, that doesn't seem, to me, that doesn't really get anywhere near to the, the idea of wonder that I want to talk about. Because in both cases that I've described, what we're looking for is a solution, which means that we're trying to end the sense of wonder that we feel and replace it with certainty. And the French novelist Gustave Flaubert, uh, I think, described this quite well and quite abrasively when he said that he called it stupidity. He said, stupidity consists in wanting to know conclusions. We are a thread and we want to know the whole design. So if all you're looking for is a conclusion, then for Flaubert, and I have some sympathy with this, you are in fact quite stupid. Because the idea of the conclusion shuts down the sense of wonder that produces the desire in the first place. True wonder, um, true wonder is something to do with actually opening yourself up and remaining open, you know? Not looking for conclusion and looking to have your sense of the unknown closed up, resolved, emptied of wonder. Um, but rather opening and remaining open of a delight in the unknown, something which draws you in without necessarily hope or desire for solution, um, maybe even because it cannot be solved, then that is a sense of wonder. Now, I, I have to um, clarify before I go on that this does not mean that wonder is incompatible with science or logic or things that we associate with conclusions and solutions. In fact, in some ways, it's quite the opposite. When President Obama interviewed um, David Attenborough earlier this year about uh, global warming, one of the questions that he asked, one of the first questions was, why natural history? And Attenborough's response was, uh, I'm paraphrasing because I haven't got a transcript, but it was something to the effect that 
I've never met a child who was not completely enthralled by natural history. As adults, we often lose that sense of wonder, and the question is more about how to recapture it. So for Attenborough, natural history provides the impetus or provides the, the kind of um, material to develop your sense of wonder, that you're not looking for solutions, you're looking to, to see more, to expand your horizons, to, to um, constantly be surprised and to constantly marvel without, without wanting to ever end that sense of, of, of surprise or marvel. So in Attenborough's reasoning, the drive towards natural history is not a drive to have the world explained, but to open up a sense of wonder that revels precisely in the fact that it is irresolvable. Now, um, I want to bring this, this speculation into some kind of philosophical framework, and for this I want to talk a bit about Jacques Derrida. Now, uh, hopefully that name isn't going to inspire too much dread in people listening. Um, Derrida's philosophical project which is generally grouped under the title Deconstruction, has to do with uh, revealing the ways in which human endeavour is always an attempt to stabilise chaos. Everything we do is an attempt to create stability out of chaos. He does not see this as a bad thing at all. In fact, he sees this as a necessary and fundamental part of human life. The problem for Derrida is when we start viewing these stabilizations, and we might think of God or God's religion, society, language, logic, love, family, all of these, these are all things that we create. They're all um, the business of human beings to manufacture, to make rather, not manufacture. Um, but the problem is that sometimes we start seeing these as somehow fixed, concrete, absolute, fundamental, natural entities, rather than human constructions. Because if we do that, then we start stultifying ourselves. We start um, closing ourselves off from our own possibilities and we start creating, I suppose, chains around us. Derrida once said something to the effect that chaos is at the same time the thing that we always fight against and the thing that we, all, we must always return to. So his, his philosophy is always engaged in this, this relationship between stabilizations and chaos, and the necessity of remembering that stabilizations are things of human construction. And um, Derrida is a great philosopher of wonder for this reason. You know, not only does his particular brand of philosophy demand the opening and remaining open of uncertainty, of possibility, of amazement, but he himself also, in, in the way that he writes, he demonstrates this kind of childish fascination with the unknown, this, this sense of wonder at the, the, the infinite possibility of everything. He's a controversial figure, it must be said. I mean, for one thing, denying the existence of, of the absolute, of stability, uh, basically flies in the face of a lot of Western European and North American thought. And also, I mean, it really has to be admitted that his writing can be incredibly difficult to, to get a handle on. Michel Foucault um, once accused him of terroristic practices of writing, which is kind of good. I, I quite like that. Um, and I, I, can, I can see where he's coming from, because sometimes you pick up a book by Derrida and he, he gets so excited by everything that he's describing that he just goes off on like 50 different tangents in the same paragraph. And it's quite difficult to keep a hold of him. He also refuses to offer up a single unified meaning to anything, because that would be against his philosophy. So you can never read his books in one way. You can never talk about him in one way. There are always multiplicity of ways of talking about him. There was a really good... There's a um, Jeffrey Bennington, who I'll quote later on, who's a, a friend of Derrida's and a translator and also has written about him quite a lot. Bennington was um, employed to write a biography of Derrida while Derrida was still alive. 
And Bennington wrote this biography, um, which is kind of a, it's like a, a philosophical biography. It talks about the development of Derrida's thought. Now, Derrida found out that Bennington was writing this book, and he said, oh, I have to write, uh, <laughs> I have to be involved in this. And so he demanded that Bennington's book be published so that there was half, every single page had half of it was Bennington's writing and then half of it was Derrida responding to Bennington. So if you look at the book, it's weird. It's got like a, a, a horizontal line all the way through it. And on, above the horizontal line is Bennington's biography and beneath it is Derrida's writing. And Derrida's writing unpicks, takes the piss out of, contradicts, everything that Bennington is saying. So the experience of reading the book is really disorienting because Bennington was saying, well, you know, Derrida started thinking this, this, and this, and then Derrida go, no, I didn't, <laughs> essentially, but in philosophical terms, no, I didn't, um, and will then develop his thinking in other ways. So he's somebody that you, you can never really pin down. But for that reason, I actually think that it's one of his most valuable qualities. Um, so, uh, right, Bennington, let, let's start with Bennington. Um, Bennington wrote a book called Interrupting Derrida, where he tries to talk about... Um, the effect that Derrida's philosophy has on the practice of reading, which I'm not going to quote. Bennington says, any text before affirming or communicating anything at all is constituted as an appeal to a reading that is always still to come. No text can make a particular reading of itself necessary. Equally, no text can open itself up to just any reading. Texts appeal to reading, they cry out for reading, and not just for any reading, but they leave open an essential latitude or freedom, which is just what constitutes reading as reading, rather than passive decipherment. There would be no practice and no institutions of reading without this opening, and without the remaining open of this opening. Right, there's a lot in there, okay? Primarily, what Bennington is doing is he's talking about the idea that there, um, there will always be multiple ways of reading a text and contradictory ways of reading a text. There will never be one way of interpreting text. He's also saying that texts have meanings that are impossible to determine at the point at which they are made. Now, a really kind of straightforward example of this is, I mentioned last week or two weeks ago, I think, uh, the idea of the photograph of Jimmy Savile with his arms around a child. Now, at the point at which that photograph was taken, nobody could, well, not nobody, this is, <laughs> this is Operation Utree, the BBC, did they know, did they not know? Well, okay, we, the viewing public, could not have known that the implications of that that photograph would have in 25 years' time, 30 years' time, or whatever, after the scandal had broken out, after the various abuses perpetuated by Jimmy Savile had, had, uh, had been shown. But it was a meaning that was contained within the photograph, it's just it wasn't available to the spectator. So that's one example of a meaning that will be unveiled, or will be made possible in the future. What about, you know, have you, any of you have ever written a diary and you come back to your diary 10 years later and you read the, the thing and you cringe, probably. But there's no way that when you're writing the diary, you could, you could possibly have predicted the kind of reaction or response that your older self would have to that diary. It's an interesting example, actually. It's an interesting sorry, exercise. If you do the time capsule thing if you write a letter to yourself in the future. Stephen Fry did it once. I think he published the letter. that He wrote a letter when he was 21, I think, and wrote it to himself when he was 40. And it begins... Everything that I am now is my true self, and whatever I become from this point onwards will be a, 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 a corruption of my essential essence. Um, or let's go back to photographs. If you think about, you know, you look at a photograph now of a person, uh, a loved one, who has since died. Now, the amount of meanings and emotions that will be bound up in that photograph will be huge, overwhelming, contradictory, and they will completely exceed the meaning of the photograph at the point at which it was taken. But... Here's the thing. For Derrida, those meanings were always latent within that photograph. 
even though they could not be seen at the point of production, they still existed as a potential within it. A photograph lasts, and if you don't burn it, or, you know, if it doesn't get destroyed in some way, then it will outlast certainly the moment in which it was taken, and potentially the lives of the people who are depicted. So when you take a photograph of somebody that you love, you are enshrining that image of them in a way that will outlast their own existence, and so therefore you are creating an image of them that will exist beyond their own death. Therefore, the implications, the meanings that that image will have once the person has died are present in the image, even before the person themselves is dead. Now Derrida calls this the pretentive function of a text. And what he means by this is, just as texts, some texts can retain meaning from history, they can also predict meanings from the future. They, they contain possible meanings from the future. I hope that this is making some kind of sense. What, what I'm trying to get at here is um, an, an argument that is against solution, that is against answer, that is against fixed or determinate readings, that says that there are always other readings that are yet to come. So whatever you encounter now, it will be changed, it will be argued against, it might even be contradicted by whatever happens in the future. So there is no such thing as, as a singular and only meaning to a text. There are only multiple readings. That is not a bad thing. That is what we might call a democratizing of texts. And in order to close ourselves, sorry, in order to avoid closing ourselves off to these readings, or what Flaubert calls the stupidity of seeking solutions, it is necessary that we retain and defend absolutely our sense of wonder, our sense of that which cannot be solved. So, um, this is just one tiny aspect of Derrida's philosophy, and I can't pretend to have examined it in, you know, any particular depth or with much skill. But what I'm trying to do in this very brief introduction is to find a philosophical framework for the idea of wonder and, and to start thinking about the opening and remaining open of interpretation. Now, to move things on a little bit, um, Genevieve Lloyd uh, has written a very good piece on Derrida that I will put a link to on the Facebook page. And she, uh, she, so she positions him in the history of wonder, and she points out that actually in Plato and Socrates, um, or at least the Socratic dialogues that Plato wrote, uh, and later on people like Spinoza, people are always coming up against uh, the notion of wonder. And she locates her argument within a Greek term, which is aporia. I don't know how to pronounce it properly. It might be aporia, but I'll call it aporia now. So the aporia is a word that means impasse or barrier. Um, and in philosophy, it is used to describe the stasis that is felt by a confused mind when it encounters a problem that it cannot solve. And it's a common word in European philosophy, and I, I presume it's probably quite a common experience for philosophers. Um, but Derrida has typically got quite an unusual approach to the term aporia, which is where um, Lloyd kind of bases her argument. In a book called Memory, Memoirs for Paul de Man, he says, I believe that we would misunderstand the word aporia if we tried to hold it to its most literal meaning, an absence of path, a paralysis before roadblocks, the immobilization of thinking, the impossibility of advancing, a barrier blocking the future. On the contrary, it seems to me that the experience of the aporia gives or promises the thinking of the path, provokes the thinking of the very possibility of what still remains unthinkable or unthought, indeed impossible. The figures of rationality are profiled and outlined in the madness of the aporetic. So what he's talking about brings us back to the idea of chaos, I think. 
If you experience something that exhausts the rational ways that you order existence, then you are faced with the unknown, the new, the chaotic, and all of the ways in which you would otherwise seek to understand the world suddenly become irrelevant or uh, obsolete, and you are forced into something new. And this, again, I'll just repeat this, this is why I had such a problem with the term post-factual last week. Because I think post-factual should refer to what Derrida is talking about. Post-factual should be when you have exhausted everything that you know, everything that has been written, that has been thought before you and around you, and you still cannot come up with a response to what, it is in, what, what is in front of you, then you are forced into a new way of thinking. That should be post-factual. Right? That should be the, 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 the definition of the term, not the opposite, which is what people are talking about in, in public discourses where they say post-factual. What they mean is people haven't even bothered trying to experience the world, trying to come to terms with what has been researched, with what has been thought, with the idea of facts. They've just closed themselves off and accepted lies. That's not post-factual to me. That's stupidity. That's ignorance. That's prioritising um, fabrications over the factual. So, um, so Lloyd, Lloyd kind of uses this, this idea of the aporia as uh, a way of using Derrida's philosophy to think about the unknown and the figures of the unknown. And if it, if it sounds familiar, this is because um, what we're talking about is actually quite similar to, to Nancy's idea of death that I talked about last week. And, and Derrida does talk about death too in a similar way. He says that the encounter with death is, is the encounter with the absolute unknown and therefore it exhausts any rational or received wisdom about the world. You know, people pr pretend to offer, well, not they don't pretend, they do offer uh, interpretations of what happens after death or what death means and so on. And the afterlife is, uh, is a, a common preoccupation of the majority of world religions. But nobody knows there is no knowledge that can actually engage with that frontier of, well, the absolute, because that's exactly what it is. It is that which resists our interpretation, and therefore it requires from us new ways of thinking, new ways of engaging. So this is for Lloyd, and I agree with this, why Derrida is an excellent philosopher of wonder, because he maintains the necessity of wonder as something which is what as what we are presented with when we encounter the unknown, the strange, the new. Now, to bring all this back to White, okay, <laughs> to, to bring Derrida and Deconstruction back into this, uh, this theatre for babies, um, I found the production of White to be a production of absolute wonder in the way that Derrida describes the term. And part of the reason for that is that I was witnessing the responses and reactions of babies and, uh, and of toddlers to something that was completely new to them. And that is, you know, the, the, the framework of what is new for a baby and for a toddler is, is huge, um, much, much bigger than it is for adults because they haven't yet, you know, experienced a lot of the world and they have certainly not yet developed critical frameworks and habits and so on that would help them to interpret the world. They're taking everything in. They can't even, you know, filter stuff out in the way that we filter things out. So they, uh, incorporate information and experience and sensation in a way that is uh, that is no longer possible for adults. And so it is, if you ever do get the chance to, to witness this kind of spectacle, it, it is unbelievably amazing to watch babies and toddlers taking in a production like White in the way that they did. And it's particularly good given that, that White, that technically it was very clever because it because babies can't filter things out, they introduce colour gradually, and so therefore the babies have a chance to acclimatise to this environment in front of them, which is monochromatic, and then over time they get this visual uh, difference that is introduced to them, and it, and it works. It's, it's, it's a kind of magic to watch it. 
but there's more to it than that, I think. There's more to it than just the experience of watching babies having this unique sense of wonder. There is also, the production itself filled me with wonder. And that I find a little bit more difficult to explain because obviously it's not designed for me, it's designed for babies. At a basic level, I think I found the, the manipulation of the scenography to be remarkable. I found this, you know, I was confronted with the bizarre tyranny of a whitewashed world that was allergic to impurity. And then I witnessed the, the state of this, this colour, the status of colour, move from impurity and pollution to become something that was a celebration of difference. And the, 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 the kind of the visual progression of that, of moving from something that is pollution to something that is um, valued, was quite profound on me. And of course, the, as I mentioned at the beginning, the political implications of this are uh, are enormously significant as we live in a world right now which seems to fear and despise difference. Um, and that is made even more profound by the fact that I'm watching all these babies and toddlers experience this production and I'm thinking, well, how many of them are going to lose this sense of wonder, this, this celebration of difference as they get older? Um, there's also, uh, there was a reviewer, I forget who, but the reviewer wrote that um, white, rather than being, as it appears to be, the evacuation of colour, is in fact the blending of all colours together, like you get when you spin a colour wheel. It is, uh, the reviewer wrote, nature's little joke, and this production lets us in on that joke. So there's something about the connection of people in nature and about the idea of colours in nature which also um, affected me. And this, I suppose this is part of the problem when you talk about a sense of wonder, is that you lose the vocabulary by which you can ordinarily articulate things. You know, I can't just uh, describe it. I can't even really allude to it. I have to try to find a new way of engaging with it. My way of engaging with it is to go to Derrida, is to, to do this, to develop a podcast episode and to talk to you about it. Um, but that's my particular language. Anyway, um, I'm going to stop there with my sense of wonder. I've, I, can't, I think I've probably completely failed to come up with a working definition of wonder, but I think I was probably always going to completely fail to come up with a working definition of wonder. Uh, because if I had come up with a working definition of wonder, it would have ceased to be wonder. So it was a doomed enterprise from the start, and I'm quite glad to have failed it. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm going to take my son to a, a children's storytelling show next week. Um, so hopefully next week's show will we'll continue this discussion of children's theatre. Um, probably in a different way, though. Thank you for bearing with me. I know it's been a very heavy session in terms of theory, but I hope that you got something out of it. Um, if you did like it, please like us on various social medias and share us and so on, uh, and, and on iTunes. Uh, please check out State of the Theory podcast. Um, the theme song is uh, Polly Edwards' One More Broke Poet, uh, who she can be reached at brokepoet.com is her website. My thanks to Kuldeep Panasar for all of his help. I should also say that uh, I've edited this episode and last week's episode, so if the levels are all wrong, then it's, you know, or it sounds dreadful, then it's my fault, it's my technical incompetence. Anyway, right. Uh, have beautiful days. So fly when you're back and go dream of the seas. Find out you're not quite that easy to please. Be slave to the tracks, be king for a day. Do you realize kings do have a price they can't pay?